That was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that. Uh, thought we were going halfsies. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. It's this pressure for uh, business leaders and politicians to be making decisions uh, in a context that support what they want but doesn't necessarily support the outcome of the decision. And we need to get better at, at managing that. The current federal elections are a really fascinating time to see that. The rise of the independence uh, is sort of how I term this election. But it, really what it is, is, it's the rise of the community yep. saying that we want a different level of leadership, we want a different level of representation. Terrific to be back with you here, as always. I want to kick off by just expressing my gratitude for our podcast supporters and recent promotional package clients who have really helped us fast track the move to podcast sustainability. Yeah, we've still got a couple of spots remaining uh, promotion-wise for the podcast this year, and it gives you the chance to reach our amazing, growing global audience. Our promotional packages enable us to amplify support for the amazing purpose-driven work happening out there, and in doing so, helps us to break even financially and ensure our sustainability. You can learn more in the show notes. We are proud to be sponsored by the great folk at Neon Treehouse. Neon are the best digital agency on the planet Earth and have the right solution for any and all of your digital needs. Check out the offer in our show notes to learn more. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome the Honourable Philip Daladarkis to the podcast. Phil is the managing partner at Horizontas. Horizontas is a boutique corporate advisory consultancy that solves business challenges through strategic advice and deep expertise in political, market, reputational and climate risk. Phil was an early guest on Humans of Purpose many years ago when he was a Victorian Minister for Innovation and Digital Economy, Trade and Investment and Small Business in the Andrews Government. He has also spent time as Executive General Manager Corporate Services at OzPost and has been a former Deputy Chief of Staff to the Federal Minister for Broadband and the Digital Economy. Phil is a big sports fan and we spend time talking about our beloved Tottenham Hotspur as well as Phil's story journey across a range of important career settings and contexts. I hope you enjoyed this meandering conversation with Phil as much as I did. Anyway, Phil, um, great to see you again. Uh, you're the best dressed guest we've ever had on the podcast today. Well, uh, as my uh, my best friends always say, I've got a great face for radio, so I need to dress it up somehow. You didn't know this is video recorded as well. <laughs> well, in that case, uh, to the people watching, uh, bring your bath bag. <laughs> we last caught up probably about four years ago. Yes, it would have been. It would have been uh, four years ago in Elston Week. More casual setting. It's now going to be the baby room, so henceforth the uh, commons presence. But I bet it must feel good for you to be back in a co-work space. Look, it is. Uh, we've had uh, a pretty torrid time over the last two years. That's, of course, the community, not just uh, you and I. But, you know, I think there's something to be said about interaction. Uh, my friends, you know, extroverts, introverts alike, I still crave that personal interaction and uh, I think that through COVID it, it challenged all of us about our interpersonal relationships both at home <laughs> with loved ones, uh, literally stuck at home with loved ones. It's like a, uh, some kind of dystopian nightmare, isn't it? Well, it, it, it was except we, got, we came through it the other side. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the commercial realities and, you know, we're, we're facing that uh, not just us in Victoria and Melbourne uh, or regionally, but certainly around the world, you know, what what is the new normal? How does it look like? How does it work? What's the new rhythm? And I think uh, we're starting to see that start to sort of establish a, a baseline. 
which includes sort of working from home one, maybe two days a week, uh, coming into the office for the other three or four. Uh, ironically, uh, the people I talk to uh, suggest that a lot of people are choosing Mondays and Fridays as their working from home days. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the, you know, the interesting thing for mine is I've spoken to a lot of people in corporate land who are okay with that, surprisingly, uh, because even though they know that they might have lower productivity on those Mondays and Fridays from their employees, they, they, their belief is that they're getting greater efficiency out of them. So 100%. they might do only three or four hours worth of genuine work on those two days each day. But those three or four hours are the equivalent of sitting at their desk for six or seven hours, speaking to their colleagues, going and grabbing a coffee, spending an extra half an hour, an hour and a half at lunch. Footy tipping conversation. Right, absolutely. So, you know, it's quite fascinating to to see how the the landscape is changing. But, of course, Melbourne and, um, you know, I, I appreciate the podcast goes much, you know, much bro- broader. We're global now, Phil. Further and beyond than it's just been Melbourne. a couple of years. But Melbourne as a city uh, needs people in it. Oh, yeah. Uh, much more than a lot of other cities. It's really the heartbeat uh, of uh, the, the greater metropolitan area. So, you know, this Monday, uh, for those of you listening, we're, we're doing a podcast on the Friday morning, but on the Monday night uh, I had dinner with my two business partners and uh, we were at a restaurant in Melbourne CBD and it was absolutely packing. The city nightlife, right. um, it's been one of the nice externalities of all this. Yeah. Pumping. The comedy fest a few weeks ago, same story. So the, the restaurant we were in was packed. Uh, we had a booking for 7 o'clock. By 8.30, there were about four or five tables around us that had uh, turned over and had uh, new customers come. And that was really pleasing for mine because it's a Monday night. And if that's happening on a Monday night, it's happening every night. Imagine and a Thursday night, just terrifying scenes. Well, it is. And, and so <clears throat> my wife and I are, are doing what we can to not just obviously support businesses locally, which we do in our everyday life, but also to come back into Melbourne. So we're back here tomorrow night on a Saturday night uh, with friends of ours having dinner uh, in a city restaurant. So we're, we're doing what we can where we can. Uh, you know, and I'm also fortunate enough that we've got uh, three children, uh, my eldest of which is almost 17, and so she's old enough to look after the younger two, even though they object to the notion <laughs> of them being babysat. <laughs> it's a uh, nice in-sourced babysitting situation. Well, yeah, and it's, you know... This is how it used to be done, right? <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, as I think to your uh, your uh, pending fatherhood... Yep. Right, that's a really exciting time, and uh, maybe... Maybe the next podcast we do, I'm going to interview you about how your life's changed and yep. you can use it as a little bit of a one-off. Uh, I reckon we should do that. I think uh, I would be the most uninteresting person to be on Humans of Purpose. But I, I quite there's something about being the, the man behind the microphone where you don't have to kind of delve so much. I have had an offer or two of people to interview me, but I think it's a bit self-indulgent. I think what I want to do, and you'll appreciate this, Phil, being a Saints and general AFL fan, is 300th episode. Yep. Not many players make it to 300 games. It's probably less than half a percent. So I think for the 300th episode, it'll be between you and my wife to, for the rights to interview me. Well, uh, I think... <laughs> make your case. Well, I, I don't think I need to make my case because I think uh, your wife has an unfair advantage. And if I was you, I'm not sure that I would want my wife asking me questions at a microphone <laughs> yeah, fair. with the intimate knowledge of uh, of what I've what I've done, what I've got up to, what I haven't done, uh, what I would have liked to have done, etc. So I'll, I'll let you make that decision, but it might be in the best interest of your long term uh, marriage and relationship to uh, choose me. That's a response from somebody who's a, had a storied career in politics and in many other sectors. Well, also, it's a, it's actually also the answer of somebody that's been married for 18 years and with their <laughs> partner for over 20. <laughs> love it. <laughs> Absolutely love that. Um, going back to what you said, I mean, I'm very interested in this conversation about the changed landscape and dynamic. Agree with you, like the city has so much potential now to kind of reflourish or, or regrow. Uh, the nightlife, I think, is the start of that. I, I really think Melbourne could become one of the great <clears throat> nighttime destinations, but also we need to make it a great daytime destination again. Um, but also, you know, the idea of what does work look like now to me is a really interesting one. Well, let's give a free plug to uh, the Commons, which is the co-working space we're in right now. It's a great working. It's a great co-working space, uh, and I've been here before. 
and love its layout, love its setup, love the way they operate. Uh, and I think that the future of work embraces co-working spaces like never before. The ability yeah. for people to come in and out of an office environment uh, without the pressure of uh, a full-term lease uh, or rental obligations, I think from a financial perspective, makes sense. I think it also makes sense from a change of work perspective. If if you and I are right in the ongoing change of work patterns, then why would you pay for a five-day-a-week space if you're only going to use it for two or three? That's right. So, you know, if you utilise that opportunity, then you have a greater level of resource to spend either on your business or on clients or otherwise. So, you know, I, I think I think co-working has a really bright future. And <clears throat> yes, there are obligations uh, on the people that run them in terms of sterilising and cleaning, but they're really not onerous, let's be honest. No, they're very easily outsourced too and very affordable. I just think um, there's so much uncertainty with where will the cards fall in terms of how people think about work. We've already seen a huge shift in power from the employer to the employee. It's a job seeker's market. It's basically, you know, a lot of people are just setting their own terms these days around what they're willing to do and not willing to do. Um, But in that environment where we feel like maybe it's two days, maybe it's three days, maybe it's a Monday or a Friday at home, um, it does make sense to be in a space that is also entirely flexible with how often you're in or out. Yeah, so if I think back in my career to a number of different roles that I've had where I've managed staff, the way that I manage staff then actually hasn't and wouldn't change to the way I manage staff now. So back then I used to say to staff, look, do what you need to do. If you've got an appointment at home or if you've got uh, uh, something that requires your attention away from the office, by all means. Yep. You don't need to keep checking in with me if it's okay. Don't need to tell me about your dentist appointment. I'm not that interested. let me know you're not going to be around for this period of time. Yep. Right? But the quid pro quo is that when we've got work that needs to be done and if it means that you need to be up until 10 o'clock at night getting it done, then that's, that's, that's the other side of the ledger. Yep. So you can only do that if you build a culture of both respect for your employee but also respect between you as people where you uh, support each other, appreciate the work and contribution you can make uh, and then, of course, that gets fed back to you uh, by your by your staff and the people that you're working with. Yeah, I love that. And I think the um, perhaps the the partner there that's missing is trust. And I remember Rachel Botsman wrote a great book about trust many years ago. And for me, sort of the workplace is is increasingly about: Do you trust the people that work for you, and do they trust you? Um, and, and if you've got that equation right, um, the work will be done to a very high quality and you won't care at all where they are or what they're doing. Um, you just know when it's crunch time and it's time for performance, it happens. Well, you know, uh, there might be some people that know my background listening in and saying, well, the last person that should be able to speak about trust is Deladakis as a former politician. <laughs> oh, come on. But uh, I, I think that's right, right? You know. But but trust you is, don't trust former Phil Deladakis. Uh, well, I, I trust him more now than I, I did back then. But uh, <laughs> he can say whatever he wants now. Well, uh, he has license to, but yep. uh, he still chooses not to put it that way. <laughs> I can't believe I'm speaking my, about myself in the third person. It's this a lot is, of fun. We is, should continue this, this way. Is, this is outrageous. So, a book that um, a friend of mine, uh, actually in the startup space, Georgie Armstrong. Uh, she is running a startup out of Tassie. Uh, it's an amazing startup and its application in the aged care sector is huge. Uh, it talks about well, the, the, what it does. It's called Gretel Analytics, but it looks at uh, whether or not you can support aged care residents with having a locator built in uh, to note where they are. So, for example, one of the biggest threats for uh, our uh, aging population is falls. So what this can do is if somebody um, is immobile for a period of time, for example, and it's three o'clock in the afternoon and that looks a little bit odd, it can set off an alarm uh, for a nurse to go and check on them to make sure that they haven't fallen over. So little things like that. Applications are huge. You can imagine 
in a prison system to be able to have a locator on prisoners to know where they are and what they've done. So if there's an incident, you can actually map out, okay, who was in what room. And we're not talking about Big Brother with an eye on. It's just literally like a geolocator in the way that our phones geolocate where we are. So it's not an ankle bracelet. No, it's not an ankle bracelet, right? Good, but, just to clarify. But the reason I mentioned Georgie is because she has uh, recommended a book which I've just got. I haven't started reading it called The Righteous Mind. Oh, and, Jonathan Haidt? Uh, it is, absolutely. And, and so you might be able to talk to me about the book better than I can because, as I said, I'm just about to start it. But its tagline is why good people are divided by both politics and religion. And obviously for me, I'm going to be really interested in in reading that uh, and seeing what conclusion uh, Jonathan uh, Hyatt uh, comes to. But tell us more. Well, I would, um, but I can't remember the difference between that book and his other book, The Coddling of the Something Something, uh, which is about basically how how soft people have been made by um, being too delicate and scared of offending people in America across college campuses and now sort of translating to how we enable our young people to grow up here. So there's this real kind of um, tendency to prevent against things like microaggressions and things that are just unthinkable back in the 70s or 80s. Um, And that environment, um, not preparing kids for adversity or challenge in any way, um, may pave the way for a really destructive place we find ourselves in now where people just spend their time getting offended on Twitter and telling everyone about it. So it's it's quite interesting hearing you say you're not sure whether how that book blends in with his other book because, yeah. of course, there are a couple of books for me that are sort of seminary in my, my professional development and one is uh, a book called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, yeah, what a book. But I've got friends of mine that go, all these books are the same. They all write about the same thing, Just they just use different examples. I don't think that that's entirely fair, right? No, that's rubbish. But Blink for me was, uh, and I first read it uh, as part of an AICD trial back in, I think it was 2008. And in the trial, uh, we would get together for uh, once a month, a group of um, members of obviously the AICD. And in our our group, uh, I was going to say group session, uh, wasn't therapy, but could have been. Group therapy. each each meeting, a different person would review a book, and uh, one of the guys in the room reviewed the book Blink, <clears throat> and straight after I went and got it and read it, and for a lifetime, I'd been uh, undertaking what the book describes as thin slicing. Yeah, and for those of you listening that haven't read the book, thin slicing is when you get a small amount of information, and you can make a decision based upon that whereas other people might need much more data to be able to reach the same conclusion. Now, the, the, the actual outcome of the book is not to say whether this is good or bad. It's to note that people interpret data differently. Mm-hmm. Some people need a lot of data. Some people only need a small amount of data. And it doesn't mean that people are quick to make a decision or are hasty to make a decision. It just it's, it demonstrates how people interpret things differently and how brains work differently. But for me, people had said to me earlier, you're too quick to make a decision, you're too hasty, Uh, you need to take more time. And all of a sudden I read this book that validated the way that I interpreted information and I thought, wow. Now, there are times in my career where I've actually asked for more data. So it's not about making making uh, an analysis based on, for example, this book that you then must make a decision within a, a, a finite period of time and then uh, go ahead and conquer the world. It's about just recognising what you need to do when you need to do it. And, and again, you know, I, I can give countless examples where I've said to somebody, okay, that's really interesting. I need to see more data to, to verify what you're recommending to me um, and, you know, there's one case in particular I can remember when I was a minister where we were reviewing a program and the department came to me and said, this program really works, Philip. And I was like, okay, that's really interesting. I still have my doubts about the success of this program. Yeah. And so I said, can you please go away and really do some data analysis? I want to know. Um, and it was a, a grant program. And I said, I want to know how many of the companies that receive grants 
That was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that. Uh, thought we were going halvesies. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. are operating three years after they received the grant. No. How, how many of them have improved? And actually the, the answer was a lot, I've got to tell you. Mm. If I didn't then get that data, I wouldn't have been able to uh, successfully make a case for why that program should be refunded. Mm. Now, ultimately that program wasn't refunded for other reasons, mm. right? But my point was that when we looked at it, the data was required to support the hypothesis. Yeah, that was one time when obviously I needed a lot more data than what I had, and and you know I think the modern day manager or leader needs to be able to assess on a different level each and every time. It shouldn't be a stock standard tick the box approach. Uh, and if I, if I was critical of the general public and the the, the 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 fourth state or the media. It's this pressure for uh, business leaders and politicians to be making decisions uh, in a context that support what they want but doesn't necessarily support the outcome of the decision. And we need to get better at, at managing that. The current federal elections are a really fascinating time to see that. The rise of the independence uh, is sort of how I term this election. But it, really what it is, is it's the rise of the community yep. saying that we want a different level of leadership. We want a different level of representation. We don't trust the major parties also maybe. Well, I'm not sure it's about the major parties. I think it's about decision-making. And, yes, that might that might sound like it's a bit of a... a um, a cut away from 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 targeting the major parties in that respect, but the major parties can uh, focus on that kind of decision making too. However, what we're seeing is community led, community driven responses to global problems. Obviously, uh, the issue of climate change. We continually see people talking about accountability and a broad based anti corruption commission. Mm. And and so people are very concerned about corruption. <clears throat> well, so there are people that are worried about corruption, and I think it would be naive to think we don't have corruption in Australia. It's corruption at, everywhere at, at any level of government. We've seen it exposed uh, in the city of Casey, uh, which is an outer suburban uh, local government area oh, here in Melbourne. A bit of a shocker, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't, not an isolated example though. No, and it wasn't great. But my point is that we can't think that because we're in Australia and we've got a vibrant democracy that we're not immune to this, right? It's not, it's not the domain of the third world is, I guess, the point that I'm making. Mm. And so, the, so I think a, a broad-based anti-corruption agency is something that we do need. Yeah. It doesn't put food on the table. So I don't want to diminish the need for it because I always believe that you can chew gum and walk at the same time. Mm. So you can actually design, build, implement, operate an anti-corruption agency and you can focus on the things that matter, which is uh, the economy, jobs, interest rates, inflation, uh, being able to sustainably uh, increase Medicare, right? I, I can't tell you, right? and I know that this is a choice that my family make. We've been going to the same GPs, God, for, you know, all of my lifetime really, <clears throat> But every time I go there, the out-of-pocket expense grows and grows and grows. Mm. The Medicare rebate stays the same, and that's a choice that we make. But they've got my whole family history. They've got my personal history, my children's history. And so we need to make sure that Medicare is sustainable. I mean, we need to make sure that the NDIS is sustainable. We need to make sure that the, the, the what the government is receiving as revenue <clears throat> matches what we have as expenditure. Now, uh, I'm no longer in public life in that respect. My major criticism <clears throat> of, of the election campaign, and it doesn't matter which political party it is, uh, 
But they say that we've got an expenditure problem. I would argue that we've got a revenue problem, right? So if we're running significant billion-dollar deficits, and I saw a a statistic that said in the next few years we'll reach a trillion dollars of debt, then why are we moving forward with income tax cuts? Well, the argument from the conservative side is we're moving forward with income tax cuts because of the cost of living pressures. Mm. Okay, sure, but that's at the expense of continuing to run a deficit budget. Mm -hmm. So you're using your deficit budget to pay for OPEX. Now, Sounds a bit like a Ponzi scheme. Well, call me, call me old-fashioned, but when I grew up in part of the labour right, mm. uh, being economically responsible meant that you used debt and deficit for infrastructure or CapEx, right, but you should never use debt for your OPEX. Now, again, we've had unbelievable times over the last few years with COVID, but we got through that with the GFC uh, and we recovered and, you know, I don't see a level of sophistication in interrogating what we're doing, how we're doing it, what we're spending, where we're spending. And I think we actually need to we need to go back to basics. Yeah. Right. Can I propose something? Sure. Um, so one of the favourite things that I've heard um, as a kind of not a panacea but a generalised solution making to this problem of um, not just how do we do budgets, how do we allocate money, how do we balance the books, but more around the idea of allowing the voters to be able to trust politicians and parties more. And the way that you might be able to do that is to have a register of promises that politicians make pre-election and keep that register maybe on the blockchain, maybe it's just a public website and it's um, it's maintained by um, an independent group. And then after the election and everyone's in their seat, in their portfolio, in their cabinet, they're held and there's a scorecard every year, they're held to how they keep their promises. For yeah. me, this, this would be sort of such a watershed moment for politics if we could get people re-engaged by knowing that they could um, rely on the promises that were made to them pre-election before they vote and then to see that how that's going to play out um, after the election happens. Yeah, so that's available right now for people with a public uh, interest uh, in both policy and, and politics to do that. I've got to tell you this um, a small insight. We did that uh, uh, privately uh, in the first term of the Andrews government of which I was a minister. And so in the lead-up to the 2018 election, um, and, and I'm, when I say the lead-up, I'm talking about 12 months out, we did an audit of what our policies were leading into the 2014 election and what had been completed, what were partway completed and what hadn't begun and why hadn't they. And there was a very high level of actual compliance with our election commitments mm-hmm. from 2014. Mm-hmm. In fact, the easiest way for you to assess that is after the next election, uh, and I can only talk to my experience in state, of course, yep. after the next election, which is uh, November 26th this year, 2022, every four years, the last Saturday, we have fixed-term elections in Victoria. Um, the next budget that gets delivered, uh, at least obviously from the Labor side of life, again, I can't talk to the coalition, we made sure that that first budget acquitted as many of our commitments from the election campaign. Mm. So here's a good insight for uh, people that are wanting to try and uh, get support out of government. If you haven't got an election commitment, uh, that first budget, it's nigh on impossible to get support from the government uh, for additional funding. Not completely impossible, but very close to. And I think there was some ridiculous statistic uh, from uh, Tim Pallas at the time that our first budget in 2015, in May 2015, I think acquitted for something like 93% of our election commitments, both in the first year but also the commitment in the forward four-year estimates. Phil, um, just as somebody who tries to say fairly I am independent, but I, I will say that no matter what you think of Dan Andrews and his government, um, they do what they say they're going to do, more or less. They try to, and um, they're, de- they're a delivery government. <clears throat> I mean, I've been kind of really impressed by the way. I might not agree with every policy decision, but he has 
delivered 60 level crossings. Um, and he does all the infrastructure stuff he's going to say, he says he's going to do. Sure, there could be a few more um, properly taken royal commissions into things that didn't go right, but I think there's um, a lot of good work going on there. What I want to get out of you is how do you think about your time in public? You said you're no longer in the public life, but what does it feel like to sort of touch back to those times and how do you relate to the, the same people that you were kind of with um, back then, do you still have relationships? Do you still talk about policy matters? What's your kind of involvement there now? Yeah, so the <clears throat> if it was a multiple choice question, it'd be all of the above, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, I look very fondly. Uh, I look back very fondly on my time in public life, and uh, I was asked just the other day about why why did I leave, and. After the 2018 election, uh, Dan had uh, said that he wanted to move to a 50-50 gender equal cabinet. And I've never really spoken about this uh, publicly, but we had a a Labor right caucus uh, meeting that morning and there were some views expressed uh, about a range of outcomes, including uh, myself obviously not being in the cabinet. And I stood up and I'm not too proud to admit that there was a tear or two as I delivered uh, the following speech. But what I said was, if I need to take a step back in my professional career to enable a young girl to be able to see that they can participate, they can be promoted, and they can be a part of governing at the highest level, then not only was I okay with that, I thought that that was a really important outcome. Now, I have two daughters and uh, I absolutely would have referenced them and uh, as well. I know some people get upset when men reference their mothers or their sisters or their daughters. Well, I don't get upset. I think it's fairly natural. Well, it, it is natural. And, and I would also argue that, yes, doing the right thing and, and getting the right outcome is always paramount. But... If somebody's journey to get to that outcome is because they want in their own mind to understand what the impact it is on people that they love or that are near and dear to them, that's okay as long as the outcome's the same because we should never lose sight of the outcome. And it's really interesting that I make that point because people always say to me, what's the difference, Philip, between private sector and your time in, in public sector? Because I do have a private sector background. And uh, We haven't even talked about AusPost yet. No, we haven't. I'm sure we'll get there. But the difference is uh, the process. In in public office, you can have the right outcome and the wrong process and be fired. You can have the right process and the wrong outcome and walk away smelling like roses. In the private sector, often the motive or the, the result, the profit motive, is your end, end goal. Yep. Do it as legally and ethically and morally as you can, but get there. Outcomes focused. Right, the outcome. So when I was a minister, one of the things that I challenged my department was never lose sight of the outcome that we're wanting to achieve. That's not to to, uh, suggest that the process isn't important. The process is important. But don't use the process to hide behind not getting the outcome that we want. Right, it's a fine line, and uh, I believe my department uh, worked unbelievably hard each and every day, and they got that. Well, part of we have to did th- sort of um, just uh, bend the knee a little bit and say, also, what a great job you did helping to develop this sector, and you know the, the co work space culture that we have now. We're sitting in Cremorne, which is you know called the the Silicon Valley of Victoria. Um, we've got a lot to be thankful for, Phil. Look, we do, but I mean, look. The thing that I love about Cremorne is that it has developed organically. You know, you've got car sales uh, just around the corner on Punt Road. You've got REA. You've got Seek with their new headquarters. My old Adobe. Yes, of course. Uh, you know, it's developed and the size and scale is great. We've now got a, a TAFE that is looking to, uh, uh, in the Cremorne area, that's now looking to move away from its former uh, uh, programs which were uh, more uh, labour intensive 
from hairdressing and, and, and other courses of the like, they've now um, moved to try and focus on more uh, programs, for example, software engineers uh, and other skills that then support the further development of Cremorn. Uh, I've had discussions with some players even uh, in the last 12 to 18 months about how we can develop that further because it makes sense, how we can get that buy-in between industry and also obviously the educational uh, side of the equation to develop and deliver more people into this area. I think that's really exciting. And, and what government's role is, is to attempt to encourage that uh, continuing investment and support it, uh, not to try and take it over. See, it's worked thus far without government intervening. So the next question is government sits at the table and says, okay, what can we do to support your continuing growth? And it might well be, for example, that we try and get a different TAFE to find some space in Cremorne. And so then you have some competition there. So one TAFE might be focused on cybersecurity. And of course, Box Hill TAFE has the most wonderful cybersecurity uh, program that was taken Australia-wide uh, at the time. And we might have, as I said, the software uh, engineering uh, side uh, in a different TAFE and um, providing different skill sets as well. Yes, so well said. Um, I was just sort of thinking um, a little bit beyond the the co-work bubble. We have a few other things to cover. Um, one thing I want to talk about is your experience, um, sort of that transition from public life to a life that you're far more in control of as uh, in your role as in uh, as managing uh, principal at Horizontus, your current work, but also that gradual shift from, you know, you've done many things before, but politics into Ozpost, like big bureaucracies, a lot going on, a lot of business business happening to something that is really um, of your own making, a bit smaller, more manageable, but doing what you love, which is the, that sort of strategic um, government relations and consultancy work. Yeah, so uh, it was probably early February 2019. Uh, I met with uh, a friend of mine uh, who was an executive uh, recruiter at the time, and uh, he and I had lunch and I said to him, how long do I have to leave politics before I'm forgotten for what I've done over the last four years in politics? And uh, they came back and said, look, ordinarily probably six months, but you've probably got 12 months, new government, well regarded across the industry, etc." And I went home that night. I remember having a discussion with my wife and I said to her, the very fact that I was actually having this lunch and conversation, I said to her, I think that says everything I need to know about what I need to do next. Yeah. I didn't want to stay in government to be able to pat myself on the back and say, you're a minister again. And I have had former cabinet ministers say to me, if you'd stayed, Philip, you would be a cabinet minister again. And I said, that's great, but that's, that's not a reason to do something. I wanted to make sure that if I was going to stay it was because I was still committed to public policy and outcomes in the way that I was when I joined the parliament. In fact, people have asked me, what do you miss most? And being a minister was very gratifying and uh, the ability to influence public policy in that way is something that you don't have the capacity to do when you're a backbencher or outside of the parliament. People inside the tent if in the public bureaucracy do, but the only other alternate, you know, is obviously being a minister. Now, what I would say to them is, in fact, what I missed the most was being a member of parliament. If I look back on my proudest times, uh, it was the ability to participate and contribute into meaningful public policy outcomes, such as the voluntary assisted dying legislation, the ability to provide safe access zones around uh, abortion clinics. For me, that's why you enter public life, to have a positive impact. And on both of those examples, I am extraordinarily proud of what the government achieved under Dan Andrews, but also under the very leadership of two other amazing women, one being somebody very close to me, Jill Hennessy, who's retiring at the upcoming election, and the other woman, Fiona Patton. Now, so glad you mentioned both right, those women. Right. Fiona is a maverick. She's not everybody's cup of tea, 
but I always had a great relationship with her. She is the ultimate politician, and I mean that in a really complimentary way. She is that really great mix of uh, politics with public policy in mind, and she uses public policy. Uh, she uses the politics to get to the public policy, but the public policy always usually focuses on always benefits the community at large. She understands, um, like, she just has great people skills, but she also understands how to negotiate. Yes, she does. But at the core, it's, is the community better off with what I'm proposing? Now, I I can't always agree with some of uh, her ideas, but I love the fact that she's bringing ideas to the table. And, again, the voluntary assisted dying legislation, for me, that Jill managed still becomes the the highlight or the pinnacle of my contribution. And there were two uh, contributions that I made in relation to this. The first one was when we referred it off to a parliamentary committee in the Legislative Council of the Upper House. And then I went back and looked at that contribution when I was writing my speech or preparing my speech for the actual debate on the bill itself. And I was amazed at what I'd contributed the first time round, and I was very proud of my contribution the second time round. And I, I spoke about, for example, uh, how do you make a decision that affects not just the current generation of people that we uh, are elected uh, the voters to multi-generational, but also I had an electorate of 500,000 people. Now, it's not possible to speak to every one of those 500,000 people and say, how would you like me to vote on your behalf? So you do need to make a decision that on balance that you come to is what's in their best interest. And I always came back to this one uh, belief. My role in government is not to decide or push my personal view on somebody else, but to give somebody the ultimate right of choice and independence and self-determination. If you don't believe in euthanasia, if you don't believe in voluntary assisted dying, that's okay. You don't need to take advantage of it. But if somebody else does, who am I to deny them the right to take advantage of that policy? Well, I feel the exact same way about many of the things that Fiona Patton's been involved in policy-wise and just wanted to broaden the, the scope of the discussion a bit. I mean, you know, the ability to have current sitting politicians and former politicians on a podcast like this sort of tells me something about the state of play of the media, the state of play of what people want to hear, and also just the fact of accessibility and being able to have these conversations that are unscripted and open. You know, um, recently we've been lucky to have on the podcast Fiona Patton earlier this year. We've had uh, David Bartlett uh, from Tasmania, former Premier, Ward of the State, just incredible person on the podcast. Um, There have also been – we had Zali Stegall also. We've had a couple of people who just aren't up for the debate and aren't up for having that open, accessible conversation and that they want questions in advance. And that for me is where I draw the line. Politicians and their officers, their staffers will say, look, send us a page of questions and we'll come in and be a robot and just respond to those questions. And that's not a conversation I want to be involved in. And I just think it's interesting that – you know, where we are now, um, I think there's a lot more willingness from people who are connected to community and to people and understand that relational benefit to just come on and have a chat. And that's how you build trust and connection. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but the last time we caught up, I don't believe that I insisted on uh, no, any set questions. Absolutely not. And I think back then I said, whatever you want to talk about, I'm, I'm fair game. Your approach then is exactly the same as your approach now, which I appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but... But again, I think that in order to – well, let me go back a step. One of the things that – the way that I approached politics and public life was just to be me. And the word that I always use is authentic. Now, there are times when that's good and there are times where that's bad. Some people tell you that I was quite polarising, but I never, ever let people think uh, that – they were in a better position than what they would have been. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you one example. I'm going to change 
uh, the names of the people. I'm going to change the actual specifics of the incident because otherwise it becomes very apparent. It's like a Harvard Business Review right? case study. I'm excited. I had I had a couple of people come into my office, mm. my electorate office uh, in Centre Road, Bentley, uh, about an infrastructure project and they were lobbying against a part of the infrastructure project that we were delivering. And during the meeting I said to them, just want you to know I actually don't agree with you and I don't agree with your position for these reasons. They were outraged. How dare you, they said. How can you do this? You're here to represent us. You're here to, right? And I said to them, look, the fact of the matter is that I'm also entitled to an opinion. And my view is that the infrastructure project that we're about to deliver for your community is intergenerational. That means that we need to make a decision that will... Uh, affect your community for 40, 50 years beyond, not just for you as a resident right now. However, given your position, I'll write a letter to the then minister that, uh, that was responsible for this delivery of this infrastructure project and I'll represent your views. But if they ask me what my view is, I need you to know what it is. Then they went off tap again. And at that point I said to them, look, People always complain that politicians don't tell the truth. I said, I could have nodded my head, said, absolutely, you would have left my office, and I said, my God, those people were nuts. I'm not doing that. I'm paying you the respect of telling you what I think, and I'm really sad and I'm really sorry that you don't like that, but for mine, I'd rather you know what my view is leaving this office than down the track feel that I've done you a disservice, been dishonest, and disrespected you. Yeah, I mean, you can't have it both ways. I mean, it's really ridiculous to think that people who are involved in politics don't have their own opinion, um, and then, you know, you go nuts at them when they do express their opinion, and you go nuts at them when they don't express their opinion. Um, so could, can I, let me just – does anyone think when Scott Morrison was at the press club and Peter Van Olsen asked him the question about the, the price of bread and the cost of a litre, does anyone actually think that Scott Morrison – goes to the supermarket and does shopping or fills up his chauffeur-driven <laughs> car, right? The answer, of course, to that is no. Now, you can be aware of the impact of prices on people without having the specific gotcha moment of, oh, yes, a three-litre bottle of milk is $3.30, right? A loaf of bread, if you get the no-name bread at Coles or Woolies or Audi, is probably around $2.30, right? I can answer that because, of course, I do... Shopping, I share the load, obviously, with my wife. Now, if I go back to the latest gotcha moment in the federal campaign at the moment, uh, um, the opposition leader... Albo last... Albo was asked... Six-point plan. Your six-point plan. Now, for those of you that don't know about the NDI six-point plan, Mm. it's about a whole page long, Mm. right? It's not like... um, you know, the the old campaign slogan of stop the boats, yeah. turn them back, yeah. right? right? Three-word campaign it, promises. It, it was a six-point page, a, a full page of actual material. He launched it with Bill Shorten, who's the shadow minister for NDIS, two weeks ago. He was at an event with Chris Bowen on the environment because Chris is the shadow environment minister, right? Who in their life thinks that when you're there to speak about the environment, that all of a sudden you can just switch tap straight away and talk about something that you launched two weeks ago. It's nonsense, um, right? It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, And these gotcha moments are just media porn, really. I mean, it's not... You know, you know, pe- people at Sky News and all these other networks are really just cashing in on who knows random statistics about well, anything. Well, you know the irony of you saying that? The journalist that asked the question was an ABC journalist. Mm. Right, and it's such a ridiculous question. In fact, if I'd been Albo, uh, if I was advising him, I would have turned to the journal and said, "You know what, Jonathan? Thanks very much for your question. I really wish you'd asked that two weeks ago when we launched the, the the campaign and we launched our policy. Right now, I'm here to talk about the environment. If you want to talk about the six point plan, yeah. right? It's a serious public policy offering. It's not something that I remember by rote." Right, It takes more than three-word slogans, but at the core of our policy is putting uh, customers of the NDIS back into the model because we believe over the last number of years, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Albo didn't do that. He got flustered almost as if he felt that he probably should have known it. But no one expects you to know everything. 
And you know the the benefit the benefit of having a good leader. And I was always taught this from my university days right through my first my my first job at Deloitte. Right, a good leader doesn't have all the answers; they know where to find them. And a good leader isn't relying on their own uh, abilities, but they have a great team around them. Now, people will decide who has the better team. And I'm not here to talk pro-Labor or anti-Liberal or pro-Liberal and anti-Labor. People can make up their own mind and many probably already have. My point simply is that we should be judging people on the team that they lead and the vision that they offer. And this nonsense about whether you can remember, it's just bullshit. Quite frankly, it is just nonsense. And I haven't met anyone that goes, oh, he should remember that. But equally, right, what, are, what, what is the standard of our journalism of the fourth estate where they think that a question about something that was launched two weeks ago is more important than interrogating what they're doing right now? Yeah, and I think um, you've highlighted a classic no-win situation because um, if Elbow does what you say, then he's not answering the question, so the journalist just keeps badgering. If he does what he does, which is the honest, I'm not 100% sure, I'm not there to want to fully admit that yet, but I am going to take the piece of paper and tell you what the answer is. You don't know enough at the time. So you you kind of – it's no win. Um, Regardless of that, um, I promised you that we would have a few minutes to discuss Tottenham Hotspur before we wrap up. Now, um, I want to know what it feels like to be both a St Kilda supporter and a Tottenham Hotspur supporter. And were you born wanting punishment or (laughs) what, what is your response? Well, I, I've lived a life of unfulfilled success and dreams. Uh, I, uh, you, you might want to edit this out later, but I was on a St Kilda podcast called Unplugged uh, a few weeks back. What a name. And, uh, and we talked about that, actually. I talked about how I became a St Kilda supporter and I talked about a life of unfulfilled dreams then as well and I blamed my mother. Um, because my mother was a refugee to Australia, and uh, we may have actually spoken Your about this in Your mother's Greek our, or no Jewish, Jewish, uh, German Jewish, and they they uh, escaped Nazi Germany just before the war and found themselves living in Shanghai, uh, which was oh, the yeah, only port that was open to time. Jewish refugees. And uh, and then when they came out to Australia, they lived in St Kilda in Ackland Street, and Mum would walk across Fitzroy Street and watch St Kilda play at the Junction Oval. There, thereby. Uh, securing our That's an early love our, that our cannot fate. be broken. It is, it's, right? It's a, a star-crossed love affair. It's a Montague Capulet, um, never to be broken. 100%. My, my, uh, my pathway to Tottenham is very different. My father was and still is a Manchester United supporter. Oh, God. And there was nothing about Manchester United that attracted me. And I, I remember watching soccer with him uh, in the 1980s and I, I found it amazing, obviously, that my two vivid memories are watching these stadiums behind barbed wire and obviously that changed <laughs> as a result of the tragic circumstances yep. uh, with the Liverpool fans. I wasn't laughing about that tragedy just, by the way, it's just the idea of that people can't be no, in no. the same I, place together. You're, you're in, so in fairness to people, mm. the laughter came before I actually made that comment. Thank so, you. Um, but... So that was my first memory. The other one was watching a Tottenham game that had um, Gary Mabbott, uh, Paul Gascoigne. Uh, oh, Paul and, Gascoigne. And, and then later on, um, Sheringham uh, and uh, and obviously Lineker at the time um, and then uh, Aussie Ardeals I remember early on. And I just loved the way that they played football and I was always attracted to them. So they're just – yeah, sorry, go on. No, no, so I was always attracted to the way they played yeah. and it's been hard going at times. And uh, the one thing I'll say is that there is a lot of vitriol towards Daniel Levy uh, who uh, manages it and is one of the part owners of the club. And the one thing I say is it's very different to AFL football, right, which are community-based clubs. Mm, uh, not-for-profit organisations. Not-for-profit organisations, <laughs> whereas football clubs are profit, uh, for-profit organisations. Yep. Unless people are prepared to put their hand in their own pocket, uh, I don't know that we can be overly critical of administrations that that use obviously the profit motive uh, and managing the club in a, a financially sustainable way to not deliver us 
uh, glory each yeah. and every time. Glory, and it's funny because I mean, it'd be like if you didn't hold shares in AGL, being critical about what AGL does yeah. um, in a way, because you know we're fans and we want success, we want glory, but it, it doesn't mean to say I don't get upset. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and it, you, like, you we, know, we, we lost to Brighton uh, and Hove Albion one nil at home a couple of weeks ago, and it was one of the most putrid displays I was filthy, I'd seen. Filthy. Yeah. I came to Tottenham Hotspur because I also uh, I'm very I've done a lot of things I'm ashamed of in my life, but I'm always happy to talk about them, which I think is endearing. But um, I, grew I can't up. wait for your three hundredth podcast where I can question you. <laughs> so I grew up. My dad. That's um, question number two, by the way. <laughs> my dad grew up in London, um, and his community that he grew up in were Arsenal supporters. Ah. So I took on Arsenal as a, a younger man, um, and it was the glory days. I'm throwing we, garlic and uh, and uh, and everything else that I can find. I have the same self-hatred. I deal with it every day. And, um, you know, so, you know, I grew up with Thierry Henry, Emmanuel Petit, you know, these Marcel say some of these great players um, back in the day. And then I just realised I have actually absolutely no soul connection to that club. Yep. Um, and I just didn't stay in touch with the Premier League for many years. And then in my sort of early to mid-20s, I was just like, I watched Tottenham and I thought, this is my team. This is a battling team that tries hard, it wants to win, but they're, they're scrappy and they're not well managed and they're kind of there's a lot of problems, there's a lot of ups and downs. And um, at the time, it was a bit different to Hawthorne, but there was, you know, the era of success and everything and expecting – Hawthorne's a bit like, you know, the Manchester United or Liverpool, but supporting Tottenham um, – was just this magical wild ride of emotion, enigmatic players, you know, your Aaron Lennons, your your um your Jermaine Defoe's and um to see where they've come in the past few years is really an interesting um like a management case study almost. Like, you know, the, they're thinking about the the coaching team, who's on the field. Getting all of that right um has taken a long time to sort of Get the pieces in place. Yeah, so, so uh, for those of you that don't really understand uh, the world game, uh, if I can put it into a, a, a more homegrown analogy, it would be like uh, moving from Collingwood to Essendon or Carlton. That's the kind of move from Arsenal to Tottenham. Yep. But what I'd say is that Spurs and under Daniel Levy, they built a brand-new stadium uh, that is world class. World class, considered that one of the greatest football stadiums in the world, mm-hmm. and then COVID hit. So all of this financial income that they were expecting to get for two years didn't appear, mm. and they still had to service the debt, etc. Right. So so uh, COVID impacted them in their strategic plan in a way that no one could have foreseen. Like what? It's a bit of a callback to what you said before. Like making the right decisions for the right reasons, but you get the wrong outcome. Yeah, absolutely. But you now start to see the benefit of that stadium. It's a multi-purpose venue. It can host uh, concerts. It's hosted boxing matches. Uh, it's hosted NFL games They're talking uh, about a as well. London NFL franchise as well, potentially. Right. Based and, there. And, and they would be based there because they've got the ability and the infrastructure. So you can see that the, what Daniel Levy has done is long-term success uh, but certainly there was some short-term pain uh, through uh, the initial stages of COVID. And getting um, Antonio Conte, I mean. <laughs> oh, he's a masterclass. Yeah. He, he's, uh, he's, you know, he's a little bloke, but, you know, to call him the maestro is nothing short of what he deserves. He's exactly what that club needed. I mean, there's an interesting comment in one of the podcasts I love, The Extra Inch, where they – sort of called out Tottenham has never had a manager before that's told them how it needs to be. Yeah. They've always told the manager how it needs to be. And to have a Galactico sort of top four or five manager in the world come to your club um, who's a bit of a rock star and can sort of set the terms has really turned the club around, I think, well, in a dramatic it, way. And in his prime, right? So when, prime, yeah. when we got Mauricio Pochettino, Mauricio was at the beginning of it. Well, he was. That's unfair. He was not at the beginning of his manager managerial career, but he was not established as a world class manager. Yep. Obviously, since us, he's gone on to PSG uh, and he's won the French uh, the French League one. Right. Uh, we then got uh, obviously Jose Mourinho, but Mourinho has been towards the end of his career, yep. not in the heyday of his career. So to get Conte as a manager still in his managerial prime is massive. 
And I, I look forward to seeing what happens over the summer, the, the, obviously the European, Northern Europe, Northern Hemisphere summer in terms of people that we're going to get into the club. Uh, and I think, uh, having a full pre-season under him will change things because just again, so the people understand, he came to our club in November, partway through this, obviously the start of the season. In the time since he's been there, in terms of points scored, goals, uh, points won, goals scored, we would rank third in the premiership yep. table. Yeah, behind so, the Liverpool and Man City. Or, correct. Yep. And so to potentially have a full season with him in charge is something that I'm looking very forward to. He's unbelievable, and I just love the, the chants and the Antonio, Antonio, yes. Antonio. And then you've got some of the players and the personality that he's brought onto the pitch and just a, a recognisable style. It's sort of like, for me, this is a guy who's got a strategic plan and he's implementing it really well. Yeah, but he needs to also, I mean, we talk about for-profit clubs. He yep. needs to be supported by transfers. He needs the players that uh, fit into his system. And, and that will mean that some love players that we've got will have to part and, and make way, but that's life, right? I think um, the way a, a manager like Antonio um, tactically runs a football club or is part of running a football club and the governance around that is just an outstanding case study for anyone in strategic management or leadership, just thinking about that connection between the boardroom, the ownership, delivering tactics on the field, a plan, delivering outcomes, what happens when there's spanners in the works, what happens when you end up with Nuno Espirito Santo for seven games or whatever. Um, And the irony of all of that, of course, is that he was the uh, manager of the month for uh, the first month of the season. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Beat Manchester City 1 0, uh, a couple of other 1 0 games, uh, and a draw, I think. It was a nil or draw, and, and we were top of the table. So yeah, things pretty, can change quickly. They can. Um, so, you know, the, the most pertinent question in this segment is um, do we get the fourth spot? A couple so, of games remaining. Yeah, us, so us or Arsenal. So I think the, the home game uh, against Arsenal, which was deferred from early January, quite, quite controversially, too, I might add, uh, I think that will likely determine who picks up that spot. Agreed. Um, final question on that, how do you engage with the Tottenham games? Do you stay up and watch them on Optus? Do you watch them the next day with a social media blackout? What's your What's your program for that? So it depends. Uh, if the game is any time uh, early evening from 9.30 to midnight, I'll stay up and watch it. If it's on a Saturday night, uh, my 16-year-old daughter will watch it with me. She's a massive Spurs supporter. That's so good. And uh, if it's, for example, 2.30 or 4.30, which the games can often be scheduled at for our time zone, uh, I'll often go to bed. Uh, Get and, up early? Uh, no. I, my, ironically, my body clock will often wake me up. Uh, sometime soon after the game has either started. I or, get too nervous. Yeah. I can't wait. So what I tend to do at that point is uh, check my EPL uh, live app yep. to see what the score is. Uh, <laughs> That's and, very cheeky. And if the score is looking favourable, um, <laughs> I often then get up. I uh, feel this is a moment where I do appreciate your authenticity. Yeah. And then if it's not looking favourable, I get angry and try and get back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> it's gold. Hey, um, we're about to hit the hour mark. We've both got a busy day ahead. Um, we haven't talked, I suppose, a lot about um, anything that's structured or material, but I've loved having you. And um, these conversations are always enlightening for me and our listeners. How can people connect with you, learn more about your work, learn more about Horizontus, um, anything that you're <coughs> involved in? Well, I've always loved Twitter. Uh, I put an asterisk or a caveat on that. It'll be interesting to see what the Wild West becomes uh, with uh, oh, a change of ownership with yeah. Elon Musk. And I, I fear for the platform because uh, his approach to free speech is obviously informed by his uh, experience in the United States. And obviously in the United States they have the Bill of Rights and the right to free speech uh, is not one that I believe is unfettered uh, globally, but in the US it's one that, that they uh, always try and defend the right. It doesn't matter how horrendous what somebody says. So I guess we'll have to wait and see what, what that has and that, what that holds. But at Philip Dolidakis, so uh, P-H-I-L-I-P-D-A-L-I-D-A-K-I-S, that's my Twitter handle. Uh, and um, Open DMs? Uh, open DMs, I think. Um, but uh, if if they're not, just message me and say you want to 
um, send me something and I'll I'll follow you and open it for you. Uh, I'm not much of I do go on Insta, but my Insta page, I've just got to warn people, is full of Maggie, my cavoodle, uh, or me doing low and slow barbecue cooking. Oh. Beef ribs and I don't uh, even have Instagram, but brisket. I'm going to just uh, add your bookmark you right there. Right. So uh, Maggie, my cavoodle, is the, the love of my life. Uh, my my wife and my children understand that, and they, they don't hold it against me. But I think secret, secretly she's the love of all of their lives too, which is why we're all on a par. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so – and then, of course, I have my official Facebook page on Facebook, which is, uh, I think, the Honourable Philip Dolodakis or, or thereabouts. Just search for me and you'll, you'll come across it. Uh, I've been doing some writing on the election for an online uh, Jewish media company called Plus61J Media, uh, and I've done a number of columns uh, on um, some electorates around what we call the Bagel Belt, uh, Goldstein, <laughs> Love Higgins. That. Uh, yep. um, McNamara and, and a little bit with uh, Kuyong because obviously Josh Frydenberg's yep. Jewish and a friend of mine. And a lot of Jews in Kuyong also. There are. I mean, interestingly, for example, Goldstein has 7.8% uh, Jewish population. It's the second behind only McNamara in yep. Victoria. You go, you go to Caulfield and you'd not think that there's anyone who's not Jewish there, but it's <laughs> funny when you get the statistics. Yes, absolutely. We're much smaller than uh, people think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, uh, I've got an article, an op-ed that uh, I've submitted to the Australian that's about to be published as well in relation to uh, uh, the unfair uh, scourge of anti-Semitism being labelled at uh, or, or left at Labor's doorstep. So that should be published in the next couple of days as well. Uh, so I'll put that up, that link up uh, into my Facebook page also. Fantastic. Well, Phil, absolute pleasure. Look forward to doing it again soon. And I look forward to interviewing you on your 300th. And when I do, by the way... <laughs> you want to do it with Louise? Well, well, I'm happy to do it with your wife. Uh, I suspect that I may not get a question in unless she... <laughs> you won't. Right? Unless, I, unless I give her my questions beforehand, yep. ironically. But um, one of the things that I did at Australia Post uh, when I came in is every Friday uh, I would have uh, 60 seconds with and it would be 20 questions of my choosing with a different staff member and it was just a bit of fun. So when we when we get to that time, uh, I look forward to my uh, my sixty seconds or twenty questions uh, with you. Uh, but I'll start right now as a precursor. What is your favourite type of food? Uh, low and slow. I, I used to cook it myself. I was just a blue bonnet on Saturday night. Favourite travel destination? Mm, tough. Um, gonna say snowboarding in the states. In the states, Colorado. In Colorado. Yeah. Uh, if you could have dinner with three people, who would they be? Phil Deladakis, uh, Josh Burns, and my mum. I can't, I can't have a question <laughs> that gets it and elicits a better answer than that. Thank you for coming. Good place to end. Thanks, Phil. <laughs> Cheers. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player, and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.